0: Hello and welcome to another episode of 177 Nations of Tasmania. In this episode, my guest is John, who was born in Serbia and migrated with his family at a young age in the late 1950s. In the early 1970s, he moved to Tasmania to study, and after graduating, John became an industrial advocate, before eventually starting an import-export business, which he runs still to this day. And he has a really fascinating family background, with some family members holding positions of influence in pre-war Yugoslavia, and others later in Tito's communist regime. As you will hear, his grandfather was a strong influence on John, particularly when it came to being an independent thinker and protecting the interests of others. John's also been a past president of the Serb and Yugoslav associations in Tasmania, with the goal to celebrate the culture through dance and food. I
1: was born and raised in Belgrade. Uh, and I was there until 1956. I went to school there, grade one and grade two. And then we uh, uh, left Yugoslavia, my father and I left. My father uh, got a tourist visa and we ended up in Vienna. And we stayed there for 18 months. And while we were there, my grandfather came and provided us with money because my father couldn't work. And I attended, I, I repeated grade two in Vienna because I didn't speak any German. and I basically learned German whilst I was there. Eventually my mother joined us and we came to Australia as refugees in 1958. uh, We got uh, sponsored by uh, some church group, but we had (coughs) had to pay that money back. Mm -hmm. My father had to pay that money back. So in 1958 uh, we arrived in Melbourne, and stayed with uh, a friend of my father's, or somebody that was his business associate. And uh, I went to school, and I ended up in grade four Mm -hmm. at the end of the year. So basically, uh, I started grade three in in, uh, Vienna in in September of uh, 1958, and came to Australia in November and finished grade four. And I didn't speak a word of English.
0: And so how how much do you, like, what are your memories of sort of early years in Belgrade? How much do you remember from that?
1: Well, um, I remember uh, going around the city. Uh, I was fairly independent. I mean, one episode was that I (laughs) pinched some money from my grandmother and uh, went to the zoo, to to the zoo, and then went to a hotel in the middle of uh, Belgrade uh, called The Majestic and uh, ordered a meal, had a meal there. Oh, a really? meal was just a sandwich uh, and uh, I was known there because my, my grandfather used to take me there because my grandfather was a general in the old Yugoslav army and I was called a little general. So they all knew <laughs> me there. And uh, eventually I was picked up by a, a policeman and taken to my father's shop because apparently they'd send out a search party because I'd I'd been away from home for most of the day, Mm. and they were looking for me. So that was an experience that I had that I remember very well. Apart from that, uh, I remember going to school. I remember my teacher. It was a a very small uh, school it was only down the road from where we lived, so I, I used to walk to school. Mm-hmm. There was no traffic. I, I remember very well playing uh, till late at night with all the kids in the uh, neighbourhood. It was fairly common for us to just play on the street because you know there'd, there'd be one or two cars a day that would pass, so it was, there was no traffic as mm. such. I remember going to the bakery to get bread, uh, which was about uh, a block away from where we lived. And uh, we had a pretty unusual household. My, my grandfather and my grandmother were separated, but they lived in the same house. Oh, wow. And uh, my mother was trying to always bring them together. They never spoke to each other. Was, when I look back now, it was very strange. And uh, while I was growing up, I spent a lot of time with my grandmother... She used to take me to church. But I also spent a fair bit of time with my grandfather when, when he was home. Well, that wasn't very often because he used to go and he, he uh, had a, a job uh, as a linguist. He, was, he spoke mm-hmm. eight languages and his main occupation was uh, translating books. So uh, he'd normally arrive home around about eight o'clock. If I didn't like what was happening, like for example, if I didn't like the, the food that was being cooked that night, I would wait for my grandfather and I would say, they're not feeding me. And he would <laughs> take me to, to the local tavern, which was again, a couple of blocks away uh, and have a, uh, a grill. Uh-huh. I used to really enjoy that. And uh, so uh, I used to take advantage of the fact that my grandfather and <laughs> grandmother didn't speak. And, she used to actually refer to him as the vampire. Oh, really? <laughs> so I was able to play, play, that, uh, play one off against the other. Okay. So that's another memory that I have from my childhood. In my father's family, my father was the youngest of 13 children, and there was a split in the family. There's half of them were on the left and half of them were on the right. My father was on the right then because he was a small businessman, but uh, uh, one of his brothers was communist from his uni days, and he ended up being uh, Tito's cardiologist, so he was a big knob. Uh, his other brother Milan, uh, he was—he uh, well, wasn't married. Uh, his wife died during the war, and he ended up shacked up with uh, Auntie Hitler. Who, who was a big, big mob. She was a, a minister for uh, interior in, in uh, Tito's first ministry in uh, 43. And thanks to her, that my grandfather survived. Because my grandfather was apolitical. He didn't like politicians. He thought they were all scumbags. And he openly criticised, I mean, he criticised the old uh, Yugoslav uh, government before the war. And he was banned from the, the court, basically, because... He said that Yugoslavia was not prepared for the war, that there was a lot of corruption and uh, that uh, needed to be cleaned up. And so they kept sending him into the country, keeping him away from whatever's happening. Because he was a big He he, During the First World War, he, uh, he got two... He's the only doctor that got not one, but two medals for heroism. The first one that he always talked about was when he swam across the Danube naked and uh, got into the the uh, Austrian camp because they were about to invade Serbia and uh, stole the, uh, the the plans for the invasion and the commander's um, sword that's when he got his first medal honor uh, medal for heroism and uh, during the war he was captured several times he was captured by the uh, Italians once uh, at Salonika front and he uh, managed to dig out because he was he, he specialized in infectious diseases mm-hmm. so he was able to find uh, uh, I think typhoid in, in all these French o- op- occupied offices and as a consequence they was all sent back to France and uh for in recognition of that, he got the Medal of Honour hanging up there. Yeah, wow. So um, that was a fairly high. And then when the Italians changed sides, he was captured by the Austrians and uh, he did the same thing for Italian officers. And Emmanuel IV gave him this gold cigarette case for his work. So he was sort of a, I wouldn't say national hero, but he was well known. Yeah. And uh, <clears throat> he was incorruptible. So that gave him a lot of uh, power yeah. to criticize everybody. And that's what he did. In fact, during the Second World War, he ran a field hospital and was captured several times by the Germans or the bloody communists or the... Or the partisans, or, or not the partisans, the, uh, what are they called? Chetniks. Chetniks, that's the ones. But he, he, he never acknowledged any of their. He just kept that hospital together. And every time he found somebody, like that's how, that's how he, uh, my, my father came into being. He found him, uh, I think he had uh, dysentery or something, and he treated him, and he became his chauffeur. <clears throat> Mind you, he never let my father know that he wasn't anything but the chauffeur. He married the general's daughter, so there was a cross that he had to bear for the rest of his life. And uh, when when uh, my grandfather came here, my father paid for him to come over here. My grandfather still ruled the roost. He was telling my father what to do. I mean, Mm -hmm. it
2: was
1: quite an education uh, to see that. And. uh, uh, my childhood basically was, uh, in Australia, was uh, spent with my grandfather when he was here. He came mm-hmm. here, stayed here for 18 months, and decided to go back to Yugoslavia. He didn't like it here. The reason why he said he was going back is to get the family fortune, because he was quite wealthy. And uh, so off he went. and he came back about, I think it was three or four years later. Was not, he didn't bring back any family fortune. No, and uh, my father, who paid for him to come here and to go back and to come here again, was really cross. Yeah, apparently, what happened was that he was then in his 70s, he found some blonde, and the blonde uh, helped him dispense with his fortune. (laughs) And uh, as I said, my parents were both working and. My grandfather was the one that I spent most of my time with, especially after he came the second time.
0: Sounds like that he must have had a big influence on you, very in much terms so. of your thinking.
1: Yeah. he uh, he was very sceptical about everything, so that's where I guess I picked up my scepticism. But not uh, his political views, because he he was his political views were well, I, I didn't agree with them. I always thought that. People were pretty nasty. They always had to be on the... It, it, was, it was sort of um, very Burkean in his view of humanity. My mother didn't work. My father had a, had a series of jewellery shops because um, under the communist system, although they said that private enterprise was allowed, it was... Uh, frowned upon Mm -hmm. and uh, my father had actually five shops which he opened one after another and uh, the bureaucrats used to find ways to close him down five times that was one of the reasons why he I think he decided to to leave Mm. it was very difficult to uh, make a living because he was a jeweller and a watchmaker he uh, eventually decided to leave and um, come to well, we ended up in Vienna and then to Australia. Listening to the stories afterwards, it took a lot of time to arrange to get a passport. It wasn't easy to get a passport. They used to say it took about 18 months for him to arrange to get a passport.
0: I guess from other, other stories I've heard sometimes there was a bit of a, a... you know Stories had to be made up and excuses to get out of the country...
1: Well, exactly. Uh, I used the excuse that I had, I had a deviated septum and I was going to have an operation on my nose, mm-hmm. and that was the excuse that was used for him to get the passport. And then, when we were in Vienna, there was again the excuse for my mother to be able to leave the country and come. Uh, so okay. that's the, that was the excuse, my deviated septum, <laughs> which I, I still have. I didn't get an, that operation. July, late July 56, we left Yugoslavia. I remember very well travelling by train to Vienna. And uh, we came to Australia in... Um, we left uh, Vienna in October and uh, we got on the ship and came here, I think, about six weeks. We came here late November.
0: And why... why- did you or your family particularly choose Australia? Was there a reason for that?
1: Yes. <laughs> My father uh, had a friend who came here, not well, actually a friend, just an acquaintance, who wrote all these wonderful stories about Australia, that this was the land of milk and honey. <laughs> in fact, he, he photographed himself in front of government house and in front of the presumably the governor's, Charles Royce, and said this is what he achieved in three months. (laughs) And actually five families that we know of uh, were attracted to Australia because of these fantasies that were perpetrated. And of course, when my father came here, he was really uh, upset because my my Mm. parents were very uh, disappointed when they came here. He asked him, you know, why did you do this? You know, you've you created chaos over there. He said, well, I couldn't say that uh, I was unsuccessful when I came here. I mean, that was his excuse. It was just so ridiculous. <laughs> and, of course, Australia was depicted as a, as a country that's forever uh, tropical. So <laughs> my parents left all their winter clothes. And oh, right. And <laughs> they arrived in Melbourne. Yeah. Uh, it was okay because we arrived in late november but when winter set in they were not very happy so that was another pretty disappointing time so
0: what what do you remember about sort of your your initial time i guess in melbourne
1: the first thing was when i was taken to school i was taken to school and um, my class teacher mr stag introduced me to the class. And, and he said, what's your name? And I said, Lubinko Jovanovich. And he said, that sounds like John to me. And from, <laughs> that, from that day, I became John. I'm still John. So you, you, you start immediately, your identity is taken away from you, mm. in, you know, in a way. Uh, and you just have to deal with it. Uh, and you know, you're forever asked to spell your name. I mean, uh, my second name, Jovanovich they, they always say Jovanovic mm. so you have to explain the J is silent and blah 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 and after all you just give up <laughs> and I, I, I wouldn't even try to explain my my first name because Ljubinko is mm. spelt L-J-U-B-I-N-K-O and nobody can even pronounce it so uh, that one is left to go to the keeper I started school, you know, as I said, in November, and uh, I was the only ethnic there. Okay. So I was a bit like a superstar because <laughs> I was so different and exotic that everybody was very nice to me. It was just amazing. Even at the start of the following year, it was grade five. But uh, very soon, a lot of other ethnicities started to a lot of kids from uh, Italy and Grace and everything else. And that's when it all turned and we became wogs. Right. So <laughs> from hero to zero in about six months.
0: What about your parents? How, um, how did they sort of adapt?
1: They found it pretty hard. Mm-hmm. Well, my mother, uh, especially for my mother, because, uh, because my grandfather was really well off in her high position He was a general in the old yugoslav army, and before the war, uh, my mother because my grandfather was a linguist, his main source of income was from his work as a linguist, and his salary that of a general which was quite high, was given to my mother as a pocket money from the age of sixteen mm. when she started living with him so her life was quite um, glamorous. She used to travel all around the European capitals and uh, buy her clothes over there mixed with a hoi polloi. In fact, uh, she attended a finishing school in uh, Rome where you learnt how to eat with 16 knives and forks <laughs> and all this sort of okay. stuff. So that was, that was her experience before the war. And when she came over here, well, you know, we had to earn a living, and she ended up working in a zip factory. Right. uh, As a factory worker. So that was a big come down. And it was very difficult for her, I think, that she found very, very hard. My father, fortunately, because of his skill, uh, he got a job in the the weather bureau. Right. uh, And uh, he uh, uh, was selected to go and install the first... uh, First uh, cyclone radar mm-hmm. in Queensland, Cunnamulla, and uh, the weather. The, the, the Australian people, uh, his workmates, were really proud of him because the radar was sent in from England, and they thought that the colonials wouldn't know how to do it. They mm-hmm. they deliberately didn't put uh, <coughs> send a, a book of instructions mm-hmm. with it, and uh, they were very surprised when they came here and the bloody thing was installed. Mm. So my father got a lot of kudos from this. He worked in the Weather Bureau for uh, 10 years. Uh, then he left uh, and eventually got a job with uh, Melbourne Uni as a technician. So he, he did all right, okay. but my mother eventually got a job as a, uh, a hospital aide, worked in the Royal Melbourne Hospital. But uh, I don't think that her life was very... Well, it was a big letdown from what she was used to before. (music) Uh, I had these friends who lived in Wodonga. They had a big service station in Wodonga. (laughs) And we used to travel every weekend over there. Uh, And there was a a big social gathering there Mm -hmm. every weekend. So, my life uh, in the early 60s, from about 61 to uh, probably 66, 67, was going to, to Wodonga every weekend. And uh, my father would party with the other crowd, and he'd always drink too much. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'd be obliged to drive the drivers back to Melbourne. All right. So, from about the age of 13, I used to drive from oh, Wodonga to Melbourne.
0: Because that's quite a drive, really.
1: <laughs> it is. It was three hundred k's. So that was part of our our social life.
0: And were they was were they um other other migrants or yeah yeah they were yeah
1: uh, uh, it was interesting how they they saw Australia. They were very friendly with the other uh, with, with the Australian community there. But the old people, the old migrants, uh, never sort of uh, managed to get involved. With the Australian community, they still lived back uh, in, bloody Serbia, or well, 50 years ago, and they were very derogatory towards Australians. Yeah, right. Uh, they used to refer to Australians as kangaroos. Okay. <laughs> uh, and uh, other derogatory terms, and they never spoke the language. They still continued to speak Serbian. I mean, it was just amazing. So that was the sort of experience of my uh, upbringing. I was always able to write, well, I wouldn't say an ambition, but just an inkling of um, being a journalist. Because mm-hmm. I used to write to the papers. I used to, from a very, very age, I used to write letters to the editor and with a whole heap of those on various subjects. And I still do. Uh, So I think that in some respects I missed my uh, career opportunity.
0: (laughs) But I'm just interested to know how how did that start? Like, you've obviously been doing that for a long time. Was there something that sort of prompted you to start writing letters?
1: Probably uh, uh, in my later years in high school, I remember reading about Asian history and the way the Chinese were treated by the British, that really got up my nose, particularly the uh, opium wars, Mm. where the British insisted on selling opium to China at the point of a gun. And I thought that was fairly unjust and the Americans opening up Japan at the point of a gun. So I suppose that social consciousness developed at that stage and uh, and my my, uh, thinking Evolve from that The way people are treated And the, the way power is exercised
0: What brought you to Tasmania from, You came from Melbourne I guess what, <laughs> well, what, what was the story behind that I guess
1: <laughs> Well uh, I had a, a row with my parents They were always telling me What to do and how to do it mm-hmm. So I said "Well, it, I'm, I'm leaving home So I left home And I was really angry, so I never told anybody. How old were you at this time? I was uh, 19. It was 1968. I left home on the 20th of July, 1968. And I was determined that nobody would find out where I was going. I was was actually on my way to uh, Europe, particularly Germany and France, where the student revolution was in full swing. I wanted to go and join the revolution. But I didn't have any money. I had enough enough to get out of there. So I remember going to the train station in Melbourne, Spencer Street, tossed a coin, decided we were going to go north or west, and it came west, so I went to Adelaide. I stayed in Adelaide for about a, a week or two, no, actually, long about three weeks, and I got a job in a glass factory, mm-hmm. and I earned enough money then to go to because I heard about all the work in uh, West Australia, earn big money. I was there till. Um, October 68 to about probably about yeah, nearly October 69 when I went back to Melbourne. I went back to Melbourne, got a job. My parents were overjoyed to see me, of course. Uh, I got a job with uh, SEC, uh, the gas company, worked we there for about 12 months. And my mother, we wanted to go back to, to Europe. my mother begged me to go to university. But I couldn't get into university because my marks weren't good enough in Melbourne. So I wrote to a couple of universities around Australia and I got accepted in Flinders and in uh, Hobart. Mm -hmm. And I thought I'd do a year in Hobart and then get back to Melbourne. So I came to Hobart. I met my wife at uni, my wife-to-be, and that was it. I stayed in Tassie. That's how I came to be in Tassie.
0: And, And what did you study here?
1: Oh, I started off with economics, then I went uh, and did economics in the arts faculty, it was easier to pass, mm-hmm. and then I did law and administration. I was at uni for eight years, no, six years. Oh, I, got okay. a, I got an arts degree, but I was mainly interested in being on the SRC and being in politics.
0: So how did you get involved in that?
1: I oh, just uh, stood for, for election uh, and got elected. It was a great life. That was the best years of my life.
0: But what what prompted you to run for election? Was there any particular?
1: because what right before I came here, I got involved in the campaign to elect uh, Moss Cass in Maribyrnong. and I was hoping that Whitlam would get in in '69, but he just missed out. So um, I got into the Labor Party, and I was right in there, you know, waving the red flag. So it was it was a very exciting time.
0: And what what are maybe your um. Your strongest memories from being a, on the SRC at university? What, what, what were some of the issues that were kind of hot topics at the time?
1: <laughs> the big topic was the, uh, the road, you know, the road between the Union building and the university and you know, the protests and sitting on the road and burning cars and everything else. At the SRC, that was the issue and also the Vietnam War. Mm. Uh, we used to protest against the, the Vietnam War.
0: What did you do once you graduated?
1: Well, when I graduated, I graduated in 75, I wanted to stay on at uni. Mm-hmm. So I had to find an excuse to stay on at uni. <laughs> so I decided to do law and uh, to justify doing law, I said, I want to be an industrial advocate. And uh, I think the, the dean or whoever it was at uni said, well, there's a job here. He pointed out a job, the Royal Nurses Federation, they want an industrial advocate and there's no requirement for a degree. I said, why don't you apply for that job? And I thought, shit, you know, all right, I'll apply for a job. So I went for the interview, and uh, they were offering a salary of 6500 I think. And I said, no, nah, I want 9000 They said, yes. I said, oh, Jesus. I want to be able to do law full time. They said, yes. I can't start now. I'm going to go overseas first. And uh, This was end of 75. And they said yes to that too, so... We, my wife and I went to uh, Southeast Asia for three months uh, before I started work. And I started work, and the first thing that got me was that there was a big remember the inflation that was raging at that time, 1975.
0: in Oh, was that from the oil crisis? Yeah, that's right. right. Yeah,
1: '74 oil crisis. So the way to get because before that uh, there'd be. uh, comparative wage justice. You'd compare wages to here from one side to the other and that's how you've got a wage increase. But now you have to show that the, va- the, work or the value of the work had increased and you have to prove that the work that you're doing now is at a higher level than you were doing before to justify mm. the, uh, the, the wage increase. So I did the first work value case, in fact, in Australia uh, for Tasmanian nurses. And I had a bit. I had 80 witnesses. The case ran for nearly seven months. And I, I had witnesses ranging from student nurses all the way to matrons. But I.N.F. at that stage, was an association of uh, doctors who ran private hospitals and, and basically their wives were running the association. And somebody like me, a, a red rag, was the last thing they wanted. Mm-hmm. So the first thing I did when I went in there, I produced this uh, screed on pink paper, RANF, the Nurses' Union. Well, they really freaked out when they saw that. 40% wage increase, sabbatical leave, maternal leave, bloody everything that you can imagine. And uh, I put this forward, and uh, we are the only true representative of nurses. These other guys are just uh, bullshit organizations. anyway. (laughs) On my first week there, I got two writs for defamation.
0: Oh, wow. From there. That's quite an achievement.
1: The executive was trying to work out what to do with me because I got the job (laughs) and uh, put in this claim. And uh, they sent me away to uh, uh, Armadale. There was an industrial relations conference in Armadale to see what they were going to do with me. And while I was there, I met Professor Sykes. He's an expert in industrial relations and he gave seminars there and I got to know know him and talk to him and blah, blah, blah. And he told me that his son was coming to study down here. So of course I got his address and everything else. When I came back, uh, I I got in touch with him. But in the meantime, fortunately on the executive, a number of young, nurses had got in, and uh, when they came to decide my faith, they, they decided to keep me on. So I ran this great big case, and believe it or not, the upper echelons, the matrons and the, the higher people in the uh, were giving evidence against me, against what I was trying to show when I was presenting the case before the public service board. So I thought, I got really pissed about this. So I decided then to change the thing and say, well, of course, the evidence is that these people don't want higher wages. Anyway, when the decision came, I got 26% for student nurses and and registered nurses and 2% for the people up on top. So that changed all the, uh, the scales. So a registered nurse on the afternoon shift was earning more money than the charge sister who was over the top of us. So, so then I had another job to change the pay scales mm-hmm. so it will reflect the difficulty of the job involved or what the, the, the job actually involved. And also the other problem was that the only way that you can get, you can rise through the ranks is if you went into administration mm-hmm. and you wanted nurses to be on the ward rather than yeah. body filling in forms. So I introduced in a class known as the clinical nurse specialist and then put a whole heap of steps so that you can get uh, higher pay but stay on the ward. The executive was pretty pissed off because I increased all these pay scales mm. and, of course, they all then all flowed to the private hospitals and, and the people that were running the association were pretty, pretty pissed off. And um, I had actually a chance to stand for secretary. And uh, I really regret not going ahead and doing that because I think that would have, been a, I would have been able to achieve a lot more then. Instead, I decided to go into business. My wife went to Salamanco. She her sister owned Wing & Co. So she heard from one of her friends, one of her school friends, that she went down the market and sold some old clothes and made $300. I mean, my salary at that stage was $300, I think. She got as much as I get in a week. So she went there to get a, a stall, and uh, we had a, a Renault. I was 16, and we went down to the market, it was a bloody rainy day, and we opened the boot, and we sold $240 worth in an hour. Wow. Out of the back of a boot. Yeah. I thought, this sounds all right. Yeah. So we went back the next week and we sold four hundred dollars, and just kept going up from that. This was easy money, Still bloody working. So I decided to go into importing. I uh, went and uh, went to the bank manager. I said, "I want to go into importing." And he said, "Oh yes." Before I did that, I, 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 we bought a house. Tell you about that. This was nineteen in seventy-four, still at union. Uh, I went to the sort of bank manager and I said, I want to buy a house. I was working because I, I had got a part-time job working as a taxi driver. I used to drive Friday night and Saturday night. I was earning about 100 bucks. And I told him, I want to buy a house. And he said, oh, how much do you earn? I said, 100 bucks." So he laughed at me. So I then wrote to the, to the... This was the National Bank. Sid Dyer is his name. He's the Mac manager. So I wrote to this uh, to the National Bank in... Melbourne headquarters, and I said, Look, you've got a monopoly on banking at, at university. We're all people who are going to be on high incomes. We need help now. You're there to provide assistance. You're getting, you, you've, got, you've got the monopoly. You're going to get all these high flyers there. You should be able to help other people. And if you can't, we'll, we'll bring other banks onto the, onto the campus to provide a bit of competition. Well, a week later, Mr. Jovanovic, I'm in. How much do you want? <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> so I bought a first house like that. So when I went to the bank manager, then different bank manager, this time ANZ, I said I was going to go overseas and do some importing. He said, well, what's good security? I said, well, we've got a house. So we will think about it. So I went off to Taiwan, bought $100,000 worth of stock, came back. And I said, I want 100000 I nearly fell off his chair, but uh, I persuaded him to give me 20 grand. So I got 20 grand's worth of stock in. Put in a van, put it in the van, went around the state and started selling. This was baskets, caneware, and stuff. So that's how I started that business. And, and, uh, and at the same yeah. time, we kept Salamanca Market going.
0: And you're still going with that? Yeah,
1: we're still doing that. Also in '85, Keating made that. Famous announcement, Australia's going to become a banana republic. Mm-hmm. Now, I used to buy my stuff on 90-day bills, which means that I'd buy my stuff and I'd have 90 days to pay for it. It was in US dollars. Of course, 90 days came up. Keating made that announcement and the Australian dollar went... Pfft. So uh, 1985, even though we bought, just bought the building, we'd done very well and we came to pay for the stock. We made no profit that year. Mm. We just managed to, to cover our ass, So that has been the case with business ever since. And then throughout the 90s, it was always a struggle. We, always, we eventually borrowed against that building because bloody kids were sent to, to friends. And that was another crazy situation. My daughter got a scholarship from friends and only had to pay half the fees. Well, afterwards, we couldn't send... The other two kids to bloody public school and other to a private school, we had to keep sending the other two bloody private schools. Oh, it cost awesome. a fucking arm and a leg.
0: Yeah, because it's uh, for instance, for instance, the most expensive school in the yes, world, isn't it? Yes.
1: Anyway, our debt went up into the stratosphere, and one stage we owed $750,000. And the Commonwealth Bank, whom uh, we had a commercial bill. One day came to our to my wife's office because my wife had an office upstairs. She had a legal practice on the first floor of uh, the building. And he came, the guy came in. So I'm from the high risk department. I was talking to my wife about how they're go- going out of commercial property. This was '96. Another really bad time. Property prices were going yeah. to the bloody bottom and uh, we'd, we'd like to get our money back from this. And I walked into that stage and said, well, yeah, you want money back? Well, give us $150,000 off and we'll see what we can do. And my wife said, oh, yeah, "Bloody man, you are never going to give you $150,000 off. And rings back a week later and said, well, yeah, okay, we'll give you the money we can, we can settle before Christmas. Uh, and she then ran around to see if we raised the money. And she eventually got uh, a deal with NAB but it was $36,000 short. Mm. So I ringed the bank again and said, we can do it, but you've got to give us another $36,000 off. Mm. And he said yes. So <laughs> we we escaped again. Now things are a lot better. It was a pretty edgy time.
0: What's been your involvement um, with the... Yugoslav and Serbian communities in Tasmania?
1: Well, I've been uh, president of both associations, both the Yugoslav Association and the Serbian Association. My, my involvement was to try and get the people together to basically enjoy our culture, which is mainly our food, and to have fun and uh, have dances and uh, basically enjoy ourselves and <clears throat> not get involved in whatever's happening over there. I mean, it's okay to, to know what's happening over there, but be interested spectators rather than active participants. Mm-hmm. That's how I saw our role. Uh, and that's what I tried to promote, but uh, there was a fair degree of opposition to that. They all wanted to get involved and, you know, fight old battles. And So eventually uh, I just slowly withdrew because uh, the sort of things that they wanted me to do, I, I wasn't really interested
0: but were you able to sort of uh get any cultural events off the ground or anything like
1: that oh yes we used yep. to have uh, dances quite often um we used to even uh host delegations from from Yugoslavia from we uh, hosted a, a Croatian uh, water polo team that came here mm-hmm. when, when it was still Yugoslavia and uh, we used to uh, Uh, invite ambassadors or the consuls that used to come uh, to our association and meet with the people and um, have that contact so they can provide um, consular access and uh, uh, enable people to to do business with uh, Yugoslavia and then Serbia. When the Serbian Association was started, while I was president, I tried to ensure that politics didn't Become a dominant issue there, so uh, I I had a fair degree of opposition because of that. Uh, but by and large, while I was there, I mean, whether I was president or whether I was just a, uh, a member, uh, I tried to uh, diffuse conflict, which mm-hmm. I thought was important because uh, once you have conflict, you know, you have people, you know, moving away. Yeah. So. That was the, the role that I tried to play. The thing that I did notice, a lot of people are still back in the, the Yugoslavia or Serbia that existed before they came to Australia, whereas people in Serbia now have moved on. Yeah. The people here, a lot of people here haven't moved on. Over there, they have moved on. But uh, in many respects, I feel like an outsider here, to a far lesser extent... And I feel uh, as an outsider when I go back to my family over there.
0: Yeah. Oh, that's a, that's a good segue to my next question, which was to ask about your experience of going back to um, Serbia. And wh- When was the first time that you actually
1: returned? 2010 was the first time I returned. Mm-hmm. And, uh, well, it was uh, an eye-opener. The first thing, the first impression was that the place was a lot smaller than it was when I left. But yeah. then I suppose I was eight years old. Yeah, yeah. So uh, <laughs> the uh, magnification was much greater when I left than it is now. That's the first thing. Uh, the second thing is um, how impoverished the place is mm-hmm. in comparison to here. But how... Uh, also how people manage to stay really uh, effervescent, mm-hmm. even though the circumstances are, uh, are rather not so nice. So the hospitality just was quite um, mind-boggling when I went I back. So I enjoyed that stay.
0: So what would be an example of that, that um, hospitality? Yes.
1: Well, uh, for example... Uh, my cousin insisted that we stayed in their bedroom and they slept on the sofa mm-hmm. my wife was quite taken back by that and also uh, uh, how we were treated I mean we were treated like uh, kings mm-hmm. uh, even though their, their their means were not so great I tried uh, wherever possible for example if we went out I would make sure that I uh, slipped out when nobody was looking in for, for the evening, but that was regarded as uh, very offensive mm-hmm. uh, because we were supposed to be the guests.